Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, diddle-dee-dee, an actor's life for me. A high silk hat and a silver cane, a watch of gold with a diamond chain. Hi, diddle-dee-doo, you sleep till after two. You promenade with a big cigar, you tour the world in a private car, you dine on chicken and caviar, an actor's life for me. Oh, hi, diddle-dee-dee. Hello, all theatre lovers, both out and proud and on the DL. Welcome to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theatre's most exclusive address, Broadway. This series is called The British Invasion, and it is covering shows that originated in the United Kingdom and then transferred across the pond to our Great White Way, some making a giant splash and some barely making a ripple. I am your host, Matt Koplick, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts. And with me today is an alum of the pod, stalker of the pod. She is the equivalent of breakdown herpes, breakout herpes, if you will. <laughs> she pops up every couple of, of months. Please welcome back Miss Allie Gordon. Hello, Governor. What's that? Again? Hello, Governor. <laughs> if I could that? just have a few coppers. I want to buy the biggest turkey in the ringo. Is that good? You, did you say, wait, stop in the ringo? I want to buy the biggest turkey in the window. Turkey in the window. Like from, um, what's it called? Oh, Christmas Carol. Christmas Carol. Yeah. The one that's as big as me. And he's like, I can't carry that by myself. And he's like, well, then get a carriage, young lad. Yeah, that, you know. Is that exactly what they say? Or are you coming up with your own dialogue fully coming up with my own dialogue but that happens where he's like he basically is like bring this all the way to bob cratchit's house and the little kid's like um no he's like i sir this is a wendy's and i am five <laughs> i'm five and he's like well then get a cab and he like pays you know what i mean yeah. he gives him more money and the kid's like god bless you everyone he doesn't we say should that totally either. we should totally uh <laughs> spruce up the script for christmas carol because we'd add so many more of like you know you stupid bitch then find yeah. a carriage you stupid bitch find a carriage you stupid bitch oh. I also will say <laughs> I've mostly been doing intentionally bad British accents for this podcast. Today, I actually thought wasn't that terrible. Yeah, I've, no, it sounded like somebody was telling me to silence my phones and open all candy wrappers before seeing a show at the National. Exactly. Like it, it was a little posh, but like there are people who do talk that way. Yes. Speaking of turning your phone off at the National, Allie, what are we talking about today? I think we're going to talk about the National Theater today. The Royal National Theater. Yes, we are. This is an interesting one. 
because and this is why I brought you on. I was like, <gasps> we're, we're, we're going against convention for this episode. We're not talking about necessarily one specific show, but rather a handful of shows in conjunction with the Royal National Theater. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I will say for the shows that you have brought me on historically to talk about with you, mm-hmm. I uh, I'm going to give you a compliment, although I hate to do it. You probably know the most about just like theater knowledge and history than like most people I think on on earth, certainly more than most people I know. Blush. However, of the shows you've brought me on to talk about with, I feel like I can at least in some way or another go toe to toe on like at least parts of it. There is always a moment in the episode where I'm like, I didn't know that. That was really cool. But for the most part, you are like, we're sort of like coming up on the finish line (laughs) together. Yeah, no, when I bring you on, it's the definition of equity. Wow, thank you so much. Actors equity. You have to ask if it's equity. <laughs> when you bring me on, you have to ask if it's equity. Is anything equity anymore? You know what I mean? <gasps> exactly. It's all because when I come on, it is debatable. Yeah. Um, they're like, how did she get the card? Who did she kill? Is this like a, a talented <laughs> Mr. Ripley situation? I don't know um, why she has an equity card. <laughs> but what I mean, what I meant to say, or what the point of this was, is that I did a lot of research going into today. And mm-hmm. I'm familiar with the plays we talked about. But this is gonna be one of those podcasts where like, it's like a husband and wife duo. And like, one of them knows a lot. And the other one's just there for like, comedic input. Yeah, and but you're that's the one who knows a lot. I'm the one. I'm the one with the comedic input this time. <laughs> this is it's it's going to switch off though uh, a couple of times with this one because there are going to be times where I think you're going to be able to take the wheel. Thank you. I know you pretty well, and yes, I do try to bring you on for stuff that you know. Uh, but also, I don't know. Eventually, this is kind of the beginning of that where I'm bringing you on for stuff where you're less of a source of knowledge on and just and have to kind of step up to the plate. Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to be like the center of the Hollywood Square. Oh, you're going to be Paul Lind? Yeah, they just like they like they know no matter who the guests are or who surrounds them. Like Paul Lind's got something funny to say. We don't have to worry about him. Circle gets the square. That's me. Yes. So, uh, Ali Gordon, have you ever been to the Royal National Theater? No, I haven't. Why is that? Because the last time I was in London, I was 10 years old. <laughs> wow, that's homophobic. I know. And then at the time, of course historically I hated gay people. No, I just, I just, uh, I was visiting my aunt who was teaching in London at the time. She was teaching at Cambridge. She was like, uh, I was going to say sabbatical, but I guess it's the opposite of sabbatical because she was working. (laughs) (laughs) She just decided to work somewhere else. No, she was like hired to like, it was like a whole thing. My aunt, uh, is a, uh, professor of copyright law and she's like very well, regarded in the field like she knows like everything Mm -hmm. and so occasionally she will get hired to teach places Ah. and like London was one of them she taught in Austin not that long ago and I went and I visited her and stayed in her nice house in Austin yeah it's cool if you know things like people care about you I don't know if you know that not that we would know but like when when people in the world are good at stuff they'll like ask you to come places and tell people about the stuff you know I mean I only recently have been asked to be on another person's podcast and I've been really good at knowing things about theater for a while so no no I, I said important things oh Matt. okay there we go important things my if apologies. you know about important things people will like pay you to come places and teach other people about excuse it. me you know are about you telling, Broadway are you telling you me can that die. my <laughs> insightful thoughts on smile are not important enough to get me tenure at Harvard 
I would love for you to teach at Cambridge an entire semester about smile. <laughs> I mean, it's a great insight into American culture, really. Um, I have done a pretty okay job seeing, because I, as I was doing research on this, I was like, I've seen a lot of these. I've done a pretty okay job seeing things that have transferred from the national to Broadway or mm. New York in general. I saw and, a lot of those things in the recent past. And you have covered two shows that came from the national already. Yes. You covered Amadeus and you're, and you are the mother of the, my obsession episodes. You were the very first, you were wow. the God, you were the Jesus. The progenitor. Yeah. You're the, the Rachel to my Abraham. Thank uh, you. Is that Rachel? It's, isn't it Abraham and Rachel? Girl, if you think I know. Aren't those the two first Jews? Or is it Rebecca? No, it's Rachel. I don't I know. think it's Yona from Children of Eden. That is. Was that an no. act of violence? <laughs> no. She's a descendant of Cain. No. Um, but oh, no. Anywho. Another creepy bug, Matt. Why do you have all these bugs in your apartment? Another creepy bug. It's coming out of the radiator. Allie's got a lot of bugs in her apartment. She killed Not a lot. I just saw one. She killed one before we recorded. She's going to kill another one now. But no, while she kills that bug, let he's me hiding. remind our listeners that Allie Gordon has been now on, uh, this is, I believe, your fourth episode. Of- I was going to even say maybe fifth. I'm a little scared. So you did, you did, um, your first one was Corum Boy. You came on to talk about Corum Boy, which came from the National. You talked about Amadeus. Oh, it is your fifth. It is your fifth because you did Amadeus. You did the frogs and you did a specialty episode where we talked about Christmas on the square. So this is yes. your fifth. You're the Thank only you. one to reach five. Thank you. Oh, my cat has poked his head through the door like Jack Nicholson in The Shining. <laughs> inform your Hi. cat. Inform your cat that the cat's episode is next week. Okay. He can do cats. I, I kind of want him to be in here to kill the creepy bugs. It's do those it. little, it's those little thin little earwigs. You know what I'm Ugh. talking about? No, ma'am. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. I, I will say, uh, so you've talked a lot about other national shows and you have seen a lot of the transfers. I myself have actually been to the national once in my life. Wow. It was quite the experience. Yes. I, the third time I went to London, I think it was the third time. No. Yes. The third time I went to London, uh, had a massive theater going trip with my papa and we went to the national to see the only play that, tickets were available to uh when we were there because they were doing king lear with simon russell beale at the olivia age directed by sam mendes and all of london was like oh yes snatched them up and there was a play by the playwright who wrote juno and the uh, peacock i mm-hmm, don't remember mm-hmm. his name but he wrote another play called the silver tassie and huh. it's a world war one epic and like the whole it's basically like the best years of our lives but it's world war one and, and like england okay so it's like all these guys who are young and had life ahead of them and they're you know, at a special club and then world war one happens and they all go to the war and you see them in the war and then they come back from the war and they're like all oh, that promise life we sucks had. Yeah. yeah like that promise we had has been stripped away but the whole thing of the show is like the first act is them you know in like the before time very you know the boyfriend agatha christie yeah. And then like the set for the club that they're in just like knocks down and you just like see wreckage of war all over the stage, uh, which was really cool. Like it was the kind of epic you don't usually see, especially that kind of a show. It was done in the Littleton stage, which for any listeners who know me know that that's very special because that's the stage where the carousel I love so much originated from. Mm-hmm. Big, big proscenium stage. It's a really cool theater because it's like 800 seats. So it's very intimate, but it's this massive, massive, massive stage. So you can see something like One Man, Two Governors or Carolina Change, which are like these intimate shows. Or you can see a big epic stage show like Carousel or My Fair Lady or Silver Tassie. 
And Silver Tassie was an epic show. It was. It was super epic. Yeah. I don't think of Juno and the Paycock being a super epic. Well, I don't know if that if those two plays really have much connection other than the playwright. Yeah, I know. I just see, I think of like a, a, a particular playwright being like, no, I write small stuff. Don't ask me to write a big thing. Okay. Well, Do you know what, what I if mean? I was like surprised the playwright for Warhorse actually also wrote same time next year. That I mean, <laughs> that two person bedroom comedy. Um, but I have you ever seen the movie of Juno and the Paycock? I have not. Alfred Hitchcock directed it. Oh, did he now? See, I'm going to get all my knowledge out up top. And then the rest of this episode, I'm going to go, that's interesting, Matt. Cool. So that's got fun. Got knowledge on top. Now we owe Beyonce $50. No, I can't afford that. <laughs> she also, has enough. Beyonce doesn't need my 50. She's got she enough She has money. enough. She has enough. Uh, so we, we do have four plays that we are kind of pinpointing as like our pillars for this episode. This is a much more sort of like messy freebie, not a lot of structure for this episode. Uh, the four plays we are mostly going to discuss today are what, Alison? Oh, look at that. I got- Now I heard that one. You heard that ding? That I heard. And I have my phone on airplane mode. Jesus Christ. Mm. I'm sorry. I'm just simply too popular. So wait, what are the four plays? <laughs> um, Wait, now I'm dying because am I, I only think can think of three. <laughs> no, okay. wait. Okay, hold on. We're doing Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Yes, we are. We're doing Equus. Yes. We're doing Warhorse. Yes. What's, and I, what am I forgetting? <laughs> the, the national production starred our favorite doctor. What? <laughs> it's a play by an uh, Irish, no, I, Scottish, no, Irish playwright. He's dating Phoebe Waller-Bridge. He wrote the movie Three Billboards. I mean, I know who you're talking about, but I don't know what the play is. Really? Am I, did I mess up? (laughs) You might've messed up. It's, uh, well, also because there's, there's no YouTube footage of it, which is why I didn't include it in like the media packet. You can like check stuff out. I'm also like, Allie just knows this play, I'm assuming. So maybe Uh this will be more fun than I realized. (laughs) The fourth play, Allison, is The Pillow Man. Oh, okay, good. Okay, good. (laughs) Because I was like, we're, we're talking about the Lonesome West today. Okay, thank God. Because I did not, I did not do any like video research on the Pillow Man, but I've seen it so many times. But so also there's no, there's no real video research to be had uh, there. So as I mentioned before, it's hard. Or I don't know if I actually have mentioned it at this point on the podcast, but it's difficult. I wanted to have more plays this time around only to realize it's really difficult to get guests for plays because you have to kind of find people who know the play since uh, worth everything else. Heard that uh, one. You heard that one too? Okay, it's because you're on airplane mode. You have to be on do not disturb. Oh, God damn it. See, I'm getting all my knowledge out of the top. (laughs) How do I, wait, I don't know know technology at all, but I just keep getting all these dings. I'm just so popular. What is wrong What is wrong with me? I'm so popular and lovable. I'm just so hot. I'm so sexy. <laughs> I'm too sexy. What's for wrong my with me? Somebody comfort me. I'm going to go over here and cry hotly. <laughs> Billy, I beg to differ with you. How do you mean? You're the top. Yeah. You're an arrow collar. You're the top. You're a Coolidge dollar. It was really hard to find things to give guests for the plays because there aren't a lot. There are fewer videos around of the plays. Right. Um, that and also like you can read a play and be like 
in some way or another familiar with the play and yeah. then talk to people and their experience of the play is like totally different than yours because you read it. Mm-hmm. This happened to me recently with um, that 1984 adaptation that mm-hmm. was like off Broadway where people would like faint. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. yeah. It wasn't off Broadway. It was at the Hudson, but that's like weirdly it's like Broadway, but not at the same time. Okay, cool. So Broadway, but not yeah. uh, because I did not see it. Um, Most people I don't, didn't. I know. I also just like, I don't love to be um, stressed out a ton when I go see shows, which I also feel is maybe like an unfair thing to say, because I like a lot of weird stuff. Yeah. So I'm not like, no, no, no. Only show me happy things. Like I'm like, Ooh, Carol Churchill. Let's go see a Carol Churchill play. I want to see the, the Shraker. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But like, I don't like when things are like, you're going to puke. I'm like, well, I probably will then. Yeah. Don't, you don't have to test me. I, I can see it. I'll puke. I don't know. I take direction very well. I'm <laughs> Allie Gordon. Exactly. I'm like, I'm not going to try and be like Mr. Tough guy. Like I'll probably puke. So I never saw it, but out of curiosity, I read the adaptation and I thought the adaptation was excellent. I think like as an adaptation of the book, it is like a true to form, exciting adaptation of mm-hmm. 1984 i think it like does cool things with the story structure but is like totally true to the book i think it's great but then when i talked to people that then because i read it and liked it so much i was like ah oh, should i have seen this and then i talked to people who'd seen it and they were like you didn't miss anything do mm-hmm. you know what i mean so it's like it's yeah. so weird that I like, I like read the play and on the page like really liked it but if i had seen the show i would have probably been like that show sucked well and that's sort of the thing that i want to get to with uh these plays some you read on the page and you're like, this seems really dense and I don't know how anyone can make sense of this. And some of them like leap off the page, but also like it's so like the pillow man for me, as I was rereading it for this episode, I was like, I forgot how insanely amazing this play is. Oh, it's Uh, so good. And I've seen high schoolers do the pillow man and still liked it. Yeah. Well, so like I saw it on Broadway, like right before it closed, I, I remember begging my mom to let me see it because she had seen it with some friends and they walked out at intermission <gasps> Ooh! because I think all they knew was like oh it's really good and it's really dark and I don't think she had seen Beauty Queen of Lanann I don't think she had seen yeah. Lonesome and West so, like they didn't know really what to expect and it's in a way it's classic McDonough you know it's it's you're laughing one second and then like gasping the next and it's shocking and it's offensive and it's beautiful and it's mind fuckery yeah although and, i will say on the page it's hard to tell how funny the show is oh i think it comes off really funny but maybe that's because i'm tying it to my memories of the stage play when i saw well, it and you also might be tying it to your like inherent knowledge of martin mcdonough sure and like what i have seen slash learned from working at like a theater school is mm-hmm. that like if you don't know that it's funny it's like really easy to play those interrogation scenes like very seriously yeah and that like the best parts of it are when it switches from funny to very serious all of a sudden. Yeah. Do you know what so I mean? Like, yeah. When um Ariel and what's the other one's name? Uh, the James, uh, the Jeff Goldblum, Jim Broadbent character. It's, uh, I have it written down somewhere. It's Ariel and Topolsky. Topolsky. Yeah. So like Ariel is sort of the more hot-headed one. Uh, he was played by, I don't know how you say his name. Zeko Ivanak. Um, do you know who I'm talking about? I do. I just, I, I don't know how to say, say it better than yeah. you. So that was Ariel. He doesn't his... need two people butchering it. <laughs> exactly. And then J- uh, Jeff Goldblum played Topolsky. And for anyone who knows Jeff Goldblum, he is, you know, tall, very straight faced, little odd. Like he's so handsome, but also so very odd. And he's really good at sort of the deadpan delivery. And so you had Ariel who was, you know, hot headed, and then Topolsky was very calm. And when the play begins, uh, Katurian, 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 
who when we saw it was played by Billy Crudup, like the play opens with him blindfolded in an interrogation room. And you're like, what is going on? And the moment they come in, Jeff Goldblum's like, what are you doing? He's like, they put me in a blindfold. He's like, why don't you take it off? I didn't, it's like, I don't know what's supposed to be. He's like, you look like a stupid idiot. You've been sitting here for 30 minutes with a blindfold. on. I was like, take that off. Like they took it off. Like what's wrong with you? So like, I'm trying to comply. But like comply with what? Nobody's here. It's like, that's how the play opens. It's really horrifying image or terrifying image. I don't say horrifying, very terrifying, um, upsetting image. Cause you don't know what's going to happen. And then Jeff Goldblum comes in basically like a Reddit thread. And he's like, what are you doing? <laughs> and then when Ariel like bashes his head into the table, there's a beat and Jeff Goldblum goes, I forgot to mention I'm the good cop. He's the bad cop. Yeah. And it's, and also like a great show where like these characters who could be as, as it is promised, good cop, bad cop have like fun reversals of like who you sympathize with most and like no spoilers if you want to read it, but like by the end of the show, like spoilers, who has, who has, okay, fine. But like by the end of the show, the sympathy for the, the events, they really shifts with the, with the cops or the interrogators. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. It is a 20 year old play, but like, it's such a, it's so good. And it's so surprising that like, I almost, I feel like if you haven't seen or read the pillow man yet, you should just like hurry up and do it. Yeah. Just like get, get to, get to experience a surprise. Get to step in. Yeah, sure. Okay. So let's not, okay. So we won't spoil the major twist, but with the pillow man, it is, this is one of the later plays technically in the nationals history that we're, that we're discussing. And fun fact was, I believe the first play done there under Nick Heitner's artistic direction. I'm, cool. I'm almost choice. positive. Well, so we can, we'll go into that for a bit when I talk about some of the artistic directors they've had and sort of like their whole legacies with the national. And it's not just because Heitner did Carousel, but I think it's safe to say like Heitner's tenure as artistic director is like probably the strongest for the national. Are they still um, artistic director? No, he did it the longest. He did it for okay. like 15 years or so. Okay. Uh, which I was about lo- to say, it didn't seem like still just because it's been such a long time, but yeah. I don't know. No, I think he, he stuck his last year, I believe was 2018, maybe 2017. Okay. I have it written down somewhere, but he definitely did it the longest uh, after Lawrence Olivier, who I believe did it for 10 years. And his time there definitely was the most like, uh, first of all, the most like financially successful for them. They've had like their largest hits with Heitner. Oh, so he did it 2003 to 2015. So wow. 12 years, 12 wow. years. But, you know, Olivier did 10. Most uh, Peter Hall did five. Richard Eyre did nine. Trevor Nunn did six because <laughs> no, nobody liked it with none. Um, <laughs> Trevor Nunn was like, look, I got to get out while the getting's good. I got to yeah, go. Then, well, none. He's like, I better get out before more people fucking hate me. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then Rufus Norris is the current one and he's 2015 to present day. Okay, so. interesting. But like with Heiner, you know, when he did it, that's when they had um, plays like War Horse and Quorum Boy, One Man, Two Governors, uh, History Boys, Curious Incident, Pillow Man, and then musicals like The Light Princess, Jerry Springer, The Opera, London Road, uh, His Dark Materials, which is a play, but still, you you know what I mean? Yeah, Um, for sure. Like big, big, big things that did very well over there and over here did like super well over there, won all these Olivier's, made them a lot of money. He also started the National Theater Live broadcast, which was like super controversial at the time because everyone like theater is meant to be seen in person and you're 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 cheapening the the grandeur and the splendor of live theater by trying to telecast it everywhere. And it's like the first thing they showed was Helen Mirren in Phaedra, which is a Greek tragedy about a woman who wants to fuck her stepson yeah and also like not that they would have known this at the time but like during the pandemic thank i mean god thank bless. god for it 
thank God for it. It was like the only thing I was looking forward to. I was like, listen, I actually have plans this week. I'm watching Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, was there, like, I had they, plans for the first time. They released One Man, Two Governors this week. I need to go laugh for three hours, which yeah. I feel like for the brief week that One Man, Two Governors was on YouTube, James Corden's reputation increased a lot. And then once they took it off YouTube, everyone's like, all oh, right, we don't like him again. Oh, right. We hate him. But yeah, he was I mean, so good in that play. I feel the same way. Because I was watching that, we'll talk about this later, the National yeah. Theater Live, not the National Theater Live, the, the live National Theater celebration. Yeah, celebrating 50 years of the National. And when that clip came up, I did turn and say, you know, he is funny, which is the only nice thing I said about him in about five years. Yeah. So when when he's when he's not in control of all of it and he's a cog in the in the machine or I guess like a part of the tapestry he's great um, yeah that's why they had to give him a um a scene where he was entirely by himself because <laughs> no one would share the stage with him yeah, we're, like, we're like, done he can go do that himself we kicked him out of this country already we need to talk to him more um, yeah they were like this isn't covered by my union he has to go out there and do that scene by himself <laughs> um so, uh, as I said, we're going all over the place with this episode, Sorry. And, I don't, and I don't care. I love it. We're just, we're riding this train and we're seeing where it's going with the pillow man. The plot is essentially it's a total totalitarian Good dictatorship job. of a of a civilization. It's some unspecified country. The and I think the names in it are sort of meant to imply like Germany or Russia, like yeah, Eastern it feels European. Eastern European, yeah, yeah, but they do not ever specify what it is and the main character Katurian 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 which is his first middle and last name and which is another example when you read it you're like that's funny yeah but like surname Katurian to go okay well what's your first name Katurian no that's your surname it's my first name too your name is Katurian Katurian well my parents were funny people and, <laughs> and which is an they go, okay it's a grand understatement and then he goes like hey fine whatever middle initial K and, and Topolsky just looks at him and he's like, mm-hmm, Katurian, Katurian, Katurian. He's like, I told you, they're funny. Topolsky's like, it sounds to me like they're messed up. He goes, yeah, that too. Yep. Um, he's like, yes, my parents were extremely fucked up. And we learn about more about that later, about why they were so. But it's essentially there, we come to learn that Katurian is an amateur writer. He wants to be a very famous uh, essayist, short story Teller. He wants to sort of be like a David Sedaris, but more for fiction than for real life. Yeah, he, and more like uh, I don't know what the word is. Like less Sedaris, like, less like humorous observations about life, and more like uh, grim warnings about. Yeah. I was about to say, like, like if that. David Sedaris had more of the writing style of the Grimm brothers, that would be Katurian. I would say. Yeah, it's actually kind of like maybe like Flannery O'Connor ish, minus the like Gothic Southness, but like the like the. Uh, who is this? Flannery O'Connor. Who? She wrote like a good man is hard to find or like the violent bear away. She's like the, like one of like the main examples of like uh Gothic Southern fiction. Okay. It's always very like, um, there's always like death. <laughs> I'm doing such a bad job. No. I, do you know I People have a wearing in black. <laughs> No, but not like Gothic, like Frankenstein, but like, no. like uh, small towns with like a reverend who's going to like manipulate everybody into giving him money. And it's sure. like tales about like morality and like bad people, uh, but also like very realistic depictions of humans. So it's like, they might be like morality tales or like fables, but mm-hmm. like the depictions of the people within them are very realistic. Does yes. that make sense? Absolutely. Well, so oh, yeah, and, his, and so like Katerian stories, you know, as I, when I say grim, like he writes them sort of like those kind of fables, but they, but he does not give them these sort of epic 
framework uh, it doesn't give yeah. them like a very epic frame they are very short and and um humanistic which makes them all the more horrifying because a lot of them involve children getting murdered yeah and like brutality yes and the reason why he's under interrogation is uh two children have been found dead and one is missing and the two children found dead resemble two short stories that he has written and the reason why the police discover this is because he's only ever had one story published and it happens to be a story that uh mirrors one of the murders which then leads them to investigate like they uh, search his house and they find all his other stories and they find another story that matches another murder so they're like you did it you did it right yeah and he didn't do it but there's a reason why they think it's him and when you find out who actually did it it all makes a lot of sense and it's just as like disturbing and sad yeah it, uh, honestly sadder it's yeah. really excellent I, I i don't i feel like so weird being like i'm not gonna spoil it but really i'd like uh, you saw it on broadway did you get like did you get gasps so okay there were, I would argue, there were a few gasps. Also, because there are two, mm, what? yeah, two major stories, I guess, that are reenacted in the show. Because, uh, and I don't know how there, how other stagings have done it, but on Broadway, which, from what I understand, mirrored the production at the National, because it was the same production team. Uh, the main set is a black interrogation room, like very dark and very mm-hmm. cold. And when Katurian turns to the audience at the uh, end of the uh, first scene and end of the second scene, he, or sorry, end of the first scene and beginning of act two, he tells a story to the audience from, you know, his repertoire. Right, and it's acted out. It's acted out sort of in a pantomime in the wall of the, uh, of the interrogation room, like above, like it plays out sort of like on a platform behind them, behind a scrim. And it's very bright colors and it's all overdone. And the first one that he does is the writer and the writer's brother. And there was, there were two major gasps of shock because it was just like a jolt of fear. Yeah, for um, sure. One involving uh, torture and it was like a very brief like lightning flash and you see it's like two seconds and everybody went, <gasps> and then the third was like a jump, uh, a jump scare towards the end of it with someone in a bed. That's all I'll say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'll, I, I just remember everyone being like, Hurrah! it was very like the ring when Samar like jumps out of the TV. Everyone no ga- collect- <clears throat> but no gasps sort of reveal of like plot stuff. Well, so the first, in terms of the plot, when what's inside the box was revealed, there were a mm-hmm, lot of gasps. Mm-hmm. And then when it was revealed who had actually murdered the children, it was less of a, <gasps> and like when I say sad, everyone kind of just went, oh, like, yeah. okay, cool. Because the circumstances in which the two murders happened, and the way it's described, just everyone kind of collectively just went like, no. Yeah. And okay, good. That's good. Yeah. That means it's a, that means like it's a good production. Yes. And then when uh, the fate of the third child is revealed, it was a gasp of like, oh, something nice happened. Yes. <laughs> For once. In For this Martin once. McDonough play. <laughs> yeah. But also like McDonough is so good at finding the humor out of stuff where like you don't expect it. And so when the murder is revealed, someone's like, when it's when it's discussed of um uh like how how is where we're at a happy ending well i survived it and i and then what happened oh right and then murders happened right and then murders happened yeah everyone like laughs and they're so oh the action of the line is like oh and then i did some children in it's like yeah and then you did some children (laughs) and the entire audience laughs because they're like that i hate that i laughed but i laughed yeah and you need to it's like it's really the 
the mark of good writing is like knowing when to like puncture the tension you've built. Mm -hmm. Cause if you don't, and it continues to build, I guess people just puke in the audience. Yeah, well, like we talked about. You, <laughs> and if you know, McDonough, this is why it kind of bothered me when he got all this backlash for three billboards. I was like, are, and, and especially from people that you and I both knew who I'm like, you're not brand new to this. Like, you know, what his writing is like he McDonough, if you have ever read beauty queen of Lenon or you ever saw it or pillow man yeah. or Lieutenant of Inishmore, his style is finding like is, is sort of exposing either the toxicity in humanity or the humanity in toxic people. Yes. So like either it's something like pillow man where you have these two men in you know the police force who are supposed to sort of be on the moral high ground who both have really corrupt ways of carrying out their uh their jobs and then even once you find out their origin stories and you know sort of your um your sympathy switch you still find the toxicity in all of and both of them or something like lieutenant of inishmore which is about like an assassin and a torturer but he has this humanity when he finds out his cat is dead and like right and then it, the whole thing ends in this giant bloodbath with a bunch of dead people and all this blood all over the stage. And then the cat ends up being alive. Spoiler alert. But like the whole, <laughs> like I'll never, <laughs> I'll never forget seeing it at the Mark Taper Forum. And when the cat came out, the entire audience went, oh, and yeah. I'm like, there is, there are gallons of blood on this stage. No, it was truly the same reaction as when the puppy comes out in, um, Curious incident. Yeah. Like, like same levels of like, oh my God, how adorable. And you're like, wow, very different setup though. Yeah. To put into perspective and to actually tie it into another play we're going to talk about, it's like Hamlet ending and uh, like a little child comes on and it's like, I've been in love this whole time. And everyone's <laughs> like, oh, wonderful. Yay. Let's ignore the nine dead bodies on the stage. <laughs> but it is a cat and people love cats. I do. Well, some people like cats. <laughs> I didn't mean the musical. I've yet, I've yet to visit your home because I, I don't want to see your cat. He's so nice. Everyone says that about their cat until they claw your eyes out. He would literally never. Everyone says prince. that their cat is nice until they inspire a musical by Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> and then we all fucking hate him. Billy, I beg to differ with you. How do you mean? You're the top. Yeah. You're an arrow color. You're the top. Can someone be charming and bad at the same time? And the answer is yes. Yes. And yes, mo yes, yes. most people are. Like, yeah. Like, that's, uh, I don't know. It's like when you see something where like a villain is just a straight up villain and mm -hmm. then he has like all these people who believe or love them. I said, mm -hmm. I said him and then I changed it to them because women can be villains too. I saw Fatal Attraction. That the woman was a doctor. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the doctor was a woman. <laughs> The whole time the doctor was a woman. The villain was a woman. Gotcha. Twist. But you didn't think. But basically, like, when you see depictions of, like, just, like, this maniacal person with no charm, you're like, but why would anybody be on your side? Like, why? how could you convince anybody of anything? Like, you can't. You're just, like, you're just, like, a cold dick. A cold dick. You're a cold dick. You you're are a cold, a cold dick. You're, a, you're just a cold dick. You are. <laughs> Allie, have you ever seen a cold dick? It's not yeah, great. It's a, it's a dildo that comes out of a freezer. That's have a cold put, dick. Have you ever put a dildo in the freezer? You should try it sometime. <laughs> Invigorating. I like my tampons to be cold. <laughs> I like my tampons to be cold. We're back. <laughs> Allie and I have quoted 30 Rock twice in the last we're two back. minutes. <laughs> and we're back. Um, no, 100%. And there are other works that we'll be coming up with, uh, both of which are actually Weber shows where there is that 
moral middle ground with characters. But the issue is that as Andrew Lloyd Webber kind of has continued with his career, he is less interested in the complications of a person's character and just is like, I want you to feel this way. So please feel this way now. Yeah. So like there are some shows where it's like, I can't get behind the moral gray area with this character because it's so clear that the show wants me to sympathize with them right now. Yes. And I can't. And it makes me furious that I'm supposed to. But like, as far as like our tolerance for like watching hard or fucked up things or like disturbing imagery, again, we're going to Teletubbies that, that kid, how do you get into the sun? Save him. It's fucked up. Save that baby. <laughs> Save that baby. No, I mean, like, we're going to talk about Equus later, which has a last third that is Tracy Jordan's hard to watch. Yeah. I mean, we could also just get into Equus now. Okay. I don't know if anyone told you this, Allie Gordon. We <laughs> There's have, no rules. <laughs> there are no rules. I will say, I do want to do a quick thing about the national for a second for anyone who's like, but like, so why does like England have a national theater and we don't? First of all, England is like an eighth of the size of America. So them having a national theater is a little easier to do because more people in their nation can come see it and like <laughs> can come be part of it. Yeah, it's we we did try to have a national theater around the same time that they started theirs, which is what Lincoln Center Theater is now. Would you the, say Lincoln Center is the closest thing to our version of a national theater? No, I, I don't. What you say is. Well, <laughs> In terms of the closest thing we have to a national theater, yeah, sure, fine. Lincoln Center, maybe the public. But uh, I honestly think neither of them even come close to what the national is for England. Yeah. Uh, Lincoln Center was supposed to be it for us, which is why the Beaumont is sort of the way it is, because it was supposed to, everything was going to be done in rep. It was going to be old works and new works and movie stars would come and do, you know, three weeks of the little foxes, you know, three times a week while someone's yeah. Hamlet on the other part. So the reason why the Beaumont stage is so weird where it's this thrust in this like giant football stadium behind it is that all was supposed to be set storage. So they could do like three shows in rep in the same way that the national actually does. Like a lot of oh, shows, cool. the national play in rep, like the Littleton does a lot of shows in rep and that is, that's also why they're able to kind of extend shows there for long periods of time. So they're like, okay, so we're doing uh, War Horse at the Olivier from like October to February. Well, we we got a lot of ticket sales. Maybe we can push it back by two months. Okay, but it's got to play in rep now with this other show. So even though it's playing two more months, it's only for like four performances a week. Okay. Which then adds, yeah, adds more com- complica- complications. And because West End theater finances are lower than American finances for theater they've been able to sort of maintain that whereas Lincoln Center they're like we can't maintain this this is too much money not enough interest so they kind of shut it down and then it became Lincoln Center Theater later on uh but the National Theater the Royal National there had been a call for a National Theater in England since like the early 1800s people kept uh critics and SAS kept on being like we need something to sort of uh bring England together in our theater going um uh in our theater going let's just put say that In in terms of England's theater, we need something to bring us all together, especially because I don't know if you know this. I've talked about it a little bit already, and I'll talk about it more with Noises Off and other shows. Uh, England, the West End had a censorship uh, problem. I don't know if you know this. I mean, there was some stuff about it in that like national theater celebration. Yeah. Yeah. That it was like they had stuff in the 70s and they had stuff even as late as the 80s. Well, so the. West End Theater was basically censored, or I, I don't know if it was called West End at the time, but London Theater had been censored since um, 
I think like the 1700s, I want to say. No, sorry, early, the early 1800s. Uh, it was called the Theaters Act. And I think it started in 1843. And basically what it was, was any work that was going to be performed on the stage had to go through the Lord Chamberlain's office. And they would remove anything that they found to be uh, morally disruptive or like politically uh, offensive, morally offensive, politically disruptive. I think those are the better ones to put together. And that morally would, offensive would be morally really offensive and politically name. disruptive. No, I'm saying that that'd be a really fun drag name. Oh, morally what? offensive. Oh, that is good. You can have it. Thank you so much. You can have it. <laughs> She's have got it. plenty. <laughs> uh, the Theaters Act came to an end in 1968. And uh, there, I mean, also, this is why it was so long before American work started coming to London, because that was part of sort of the censorship act. It was like only British works. And then I think it was either Death of a Salesman or a Streetcar Named Desire, where England was like, no, we need, we would like to see this, please. We very much would like to see this play. And so I don't remember which one it was, but it was one of those two that I think became the first American play performed on the West End. And then and anything kind of, before that, they were like, I don't need to see that. Yeah, well, so I think... Again, don't call me on this. I'm almost positive that like Rogers and Hammerstein didn't start coming to the West End until the end of the 40s. Okay. Like I believe Oklahoma and Carousel started coming around like 47, 48. But they were like, uh, hey, Clifford Odets, fuck you. That, that is what I've read. That is what I've been told. They uh, said that specifically? Yes. Specifically you read that they said, hey, Clifford Odets, fuck you. I believe what they said was, hey, Clifford Odets, go stick a frozen dildo up your ass. Yeah. And eat a frozen tampon. I'm almost positive. Don't quote me. Yeah. They were also, like waiting for this lefty, this lefty thumb up your ass. I'm also, I also 100% could be butchering this. I'm, th- this is th- the, the documentation of this is so uh, vague and scattered that I've had to kind of go off of my memory of what I was taught in school, as well as like the little bits I've been able to find. God, so I'm sure like, don't the actual... make me think about things I learned in school. Never. Not once. I can't name you all the countries, but so logis- <laughs> I'm sure I have some logistics wrong, but that is sort of the the gist of it is both that American works were not really brought to the London stage for a very long time. And then also there was a censorship um, situation there until the Theaters Act of 1968. And that's what sort of began the boom of the bedroom farces in London that would eventually lead us to noises off because everybody's like, well, now we can write about all this stuff, which is like what led to the no sex, please, or British play Mm -hmm. and all that stuff being hits and they talked about this in the national thing as well they had um the romans in britain which was like a lot of people thought was just produced because they're like well we can show sodomy on stage now so let's just have a play with a lot of sodomy right and then in the 80s they were like no well they tried again they they couldn't they didn't actually pass a new act but the government kept on being like with nudity we saw a penis and they're like you saw saw two penises and they saw two penises and like they were like we're actually going to sell more tickets now yeah, that was my favorite. My favorite part of it is that there was like a whole stink about like some gay sex in a show in the eighties, and then they it lost was the Romans their, in Britain. It was they it lost was, their lawsuit, and then everybody was like, "And I want to buy tickets to see it." <laughs> I want. It was literally that there was supposed to be a Roman guard sodomizes uh, an English per, uh, English man, and everyone was like, "That sounds foul." Where can I get tickets? Yeah, I have to see it to know how much I hate it. Yeah, <laughs> if I'm going to protest this thing, I need to know what I'm protesting, which how far we've come. Intimately, I should get a front row seat to see what this is that I'm going to protest. This is to say there were sort of, uh, there were stops and starts for National Theater in the 40s. That was when they finally made like an official attempt after they had finally established what will become the Royal Shakespeare Company. I think it was called like Royal, I think it was just called like Royal Shakespeare Theater. I don't know the exact name, but that the Royal Shakespeare Company has been around a lot longer than the National 
but the nationals kind of become more beloved in England. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because like, it took so long for the national theater to finally get up. It felt like finally we did it. Uh, World War II kind of did in the first attempts because England was like, well, we're in the middle of wreckage and we are in like negative billions of pounds in our national budget. So we don't have the money to do it. And then finally they were able to make something happen in 1962. And they're like, until we have the funds to like build an actual theater for this, you're going to be performing at the old Vic theater in Waterloo where they did perform for 10 years, which is where um, Equus and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern both premiered. Lawrence Olivier was the first artistic director. He did it for 10 years. And then in 1977, they moved to the building that we now know as the national. And they have three theaters, the Olivier, which is their biggest theater, which with a big thrust stage, like the Beaumont. They also have this thing called the drum revolve, which is really cool. Cause it's like both the turntable, but also like it can lift up and have things underneath it. It's a really cool piece of technology. The Littleton, which is a traditional proscenium with a huge, huge stage. And then the Cottlestow, which used to be called the Dorfman. Um, no, sorry. It's now known as the Dorfman. It used to be called the Cottlestow and that's their black box theater. That's where Angels in America premiered. I believe that's where Pillow Man premiered. They're like super intimate productions. Sweeney Todd was there with Julie McKenzie. Mm-hmm. Uh, fun, 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 fun stuff. And also none of them were ready to open in the seventies when they opened that building. Yep. They opened them that one was at a fun time. Little, that was a fun little fact from that thing too. Where yep. I, forget, I can't remember if it was from the celebration or if it was from that woman talking about the national theater archives where she was mm-hmm. just like, this opened in 1972. It wasn't ready for opening night. So we all sat on the grass and watched the show. Then yep. this theater opened shortly after it wasn't ready. So we went to the dressing rooms and we did the shows in the dressing rooms. Then there was the Olivier, which also wasn't open. So we took the backstage area and put the audience in there and it still exists to this day because we were too lazy to pull that part down it's like phenomenal i we love, love I that love just that none stuff. of these were ready <laughs> no none of it was ready i love that each theater had to be open separately because they're like listen we're not going to get all these ready at the same time people are antsy so like let's do this one at a time and even then they weren't ready <laughs> and they still weren't ready <laughs> and they, listen they didn't stay ready they had to get ready they still weren't ready Let's talk about more some of these plays because we've talked about the Pillman a lot. That's true. Aquas. The one that I wasn't ready for. Yeah, Aquas. Uh, what is Aquas about? Uh, Equus is about a... <laughs> Not even a... entertaining. <laughs> I'm just going to try and give you the, the, the most like basic summary. Sure. Uh, it's about a therapist who's like, my job's boring. And then a social worker is like, mm-hmm, you think your job's boring? Try and take this case. And she brings him a teenage boy who has a... Uh, a fascination with horses and it, it it is revealed that it is like a sexual fascination with horses as well and mm. it's largely just like um I was gonna say interrogation but that's not quite the right word I guess it's like therapy scenes yeah uh, it's but they, they are then played a, out they called it like a psychological suspense or like that makes sense yeah um like it's it's both a memory play but also oh, a psychological detective story because yeah. this isn't a twist because it's established at the very beginning of the play. Truly the very beginning. She's like, yeah. you think your job's easy. You're bored of your, you're, you're bored of your clients. <laughs> Have <Yeah>. this client. <laughs> cause this, well, cause it's not just, it's not just that he has a fascination with horses. It's that he blinded six horses in a stable during a manic episode. Right. And, and they want to understand like, like why this happened and yeah. what caused him to have this like mental break. So large portions of the show are just these two characters talking in an office, but then scenes will play out uh, with other characters, new actors and things like that, like uh, in a separate section of the stage or behind them or whatever it is. And those scenes are a little more 
active or can be staged in interesting ways. Like for example, like representations of the horses or mm-hmm. of sexual acts or any of the above. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. Is, is that a, is there a more of a summary that should be? No, other than that, <laughs> you're going to just like details of the play, details. which we can talk about as we talk about the play. But yeah, I mean, Equus is the Latin word for horse and is also then like the name of the god of horses that this disturbed Kid, teenage boy yeah, he like, like invents that that this is like the god of horses that he wants to like that he communicates with uh, and pay, pay, pay um there was a word in my mind that i can't make come out of my mouth that basically yeah. means like give a blessing to or like get, live in in honor of yeah and i can't say it because it's i can't make it recall that's what's happening i can't COVID. make it recall. just truly the thing that has been most affected by covid and lockdowns and just like not talking to people is word recall there are a 100%. whole bunch of words up in here and i and they are like in filing cabinets that have locks and i've lost the key and listen i as i was reading equus as i was rereading equus i should say i kept on thinking to myself damn peter schaefer he who also wrote amadeus i was like damn peter schaefer you really know words yeah, There's he so really do words. use a lot of words. He uses a lot of damn words in this play. And this is a play where you read it and you don't think it's going to be an explosive play. You're like, this sounds really boring. I don't, like, it. it's so dry. There's no humor. There's no energy. Like, it's just a psychological play with a lot of Latin words talking about some kid and his fascination with horses. And it's really something where once you see it done on stage with good actors and, like, you know, a director who can sort of make everything move seamlessly, which the play was sort of written to be, um, oh, great. Even though I had it on Disturb, my phone still dinged. Yay. So I love technology, everybody. I love I, technology. Everything is great. Everything is awesome. But with this play, yes, the design. So the horses are a character in this play. They absolutely have to be. And because it's a memory play, you can kind of get away with everything being uh, symbolic and uh impressionistic I want to say like the original design of this show and this is sort of the beginning in my opinion uh with plays because this happened with Oliver but now it's happening with Equus and I would argue to an even larger scale where the design of the production is so integral to the success of the play that it becomes how everybody does it yeah like nobody does Oliver not I was saying a lot of there are a lot of productions of Oliver out there a lot of them are not on a turntable unit set like the original was, but that original production was how it was, you know, broadcast in London and America and multiple other uh, countries to sort of be like, this is how we want you to experience the show for the first time. And then production since then have done new things. That also comes are from you the fact telling that the me that when we did Oliver at Stage Door Manor, there wasn't a turntable set? When did we, when did you and I do Oliver at Stage Door? We did not. It just was at the same time as us. Oh, I guess I blocked. I that remember out. the set. I remember the proscenium set. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I mean, stage door. What a flop! They don't have a single turntable there. Flops. Not a single turntable in the entire camp. Can you believe that? Flops, garbage, trash. <laughs> but Equus, I guarantee you, if stage door had done Equus, they would have done the exact same design for the horses as they did in the original production because the right. design of those horses is pretty important to the success of the play. Uh, I mean, again, I'm sorry that I keep doing this where like you'll say something and then I'll be reminded of how it ties in with the next thing we're going to talk about. I don't I'm not even talking about horses specifically, but it also has like become part of a trend of theater, let's say, where like the production design is the show. Mm -hmm. And that if like, let's say you were trying to like, let's say you and I were running 
a theater company and we were mm-hmm. trying to like think of our programming for the season, we would literally be like, well, we can't do Warhorse because we don't have money for the horses and the horses yeah. are the show. It's not the script. It's not the actors. Mm-mm. It's not the music. It's the, the horse. Yeah. And so it's like, not that like Peter Schaefer was basically being like, it's all about the spectacle, but because it has become so iconic and it's like such a big part of the show, I'm sure there are people out there who were like, we'd like to do Equus, but like, we just don't know what we're going to do about the horses. So we're not going to do Equus because yeah. like, it's like, it's a horses are bust kind of. Yeah. Well, and sort of that's the thing with the national stuff that's so fascinating. And I'm glad you brought up Warhorse because they are connected, not just because of the horses, but because of the design of the show. Right. Like Warhorse is an interesting case where it was commissioned and workshopped at the national for a while. Cause the national also does, you know, they do constant studio workshops of their, of their, plays went before they premiere them and they even do this with uh children because like warhorse was designed to be like like corn boy it was it was gonna be the christmas show for children right. in the same way that they had like his dark materials these big epic stage productions based off of children's books which when you read like corn boy and warhorse you're like this was for children yeah um which because weirdly the book of warhorse is even darker than the than the play there's like a little I mean, french girl who dies in the book the but they're like no is, we're gonna keep her alive is- play the play is dark simply because it's like about wartime. I would not necessarily say it's like darker than anything a kid could see. Do you know what I mean? They're they're pretty intense about the violence of war for sure. Like they don't sugarcoat it. I mean, they do it very theatrically. They're not like, yeah. look at the guts coming out, but they they give you a great sense of the doom and the fear. Yes. And- it's not like the boys hanging off the barricade at the end of lame is yes just like unbloody and fine just although like, oh, i yeah dead. <laughs> i i i yeah i would argue the barricade revolve with lame is is more palatable for children than the way warhorse deals with that's what i'm death. saying that's what yeah, i'm yeah. saying like it, it they're like pretty men sprawled out over a barricade yeah and you're like well, they're dead they're and also because like, like lame is <laughs> Les Mis is a poem the musical of lame is is meant to be a poem it's operatic it's melodrama it's not meant to be like gutsy gritty which is why anytime I see a production that tries to do that or like the movie when they're like we're doing it real I'm like well now it all seems stupid because it all has to fall like the whole thing has to be a Rembrandt painting like that's how it's supposed to work that's how what that's what makes it the most effective Warhorse is kind of similar but Warhorse like I don't know like it's almost as if they're like we want to show you the fear of war but we also are aware that there are children in the audience. So we're never going to make it realistic. It's still puppets made of, you know, leather and metal. And, you know, it's very dark, you know, impressionistic lighting. But we're not going to make you feel like we're not going to be like beautiful, sweeping music of look at the beautiful dead buddies. It's no, it's, yeah. like, it's like, look at these people scared out of their fucking minds. No, and it, it, is, it is a really like. If, if you like are like, what's the plot of Warhorse? You're like, a guy wants to find his horse. He loves his horse and he's got to find baby. him. It's not particular, like, it's not really a show about plot, but no. it is just a show about like uh, war. And it is a show about like um, emotions. And it is a show about like the humanizing the fact that like people who fight in wars are humans. Yeah. It's not like one side versus another side. It's like, you know, you cross over to the enemy side and it's still like a guy who got blinded and is like scared and like stumbling around. You're like, oh, that's very sad. You know I'd I mean? argue, so Warhorse and Equus, I think of the four we have here, not again, not just because they're also about horses and the spectacle, they're the most of these four plays that are truly about storytelling, which is ironic when Pillow Man is about a storyteller. But I, of these four, Pillow Man is perhaps the closest play 
to an American play in terms of like, here are four characters, they're in a room, there's a thing going on, there's conflict and people are shouting at each other in this unit set. But of course, because it's Martin McDonough, there's obviously a giant dark twist about it all. After that, we have Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, which is also a very talky play, but much more high concept in terms of what it's trying to convey. It's not about the design or the staging. It's not about even storytelling. It's a it's a very meta show that is sort of one of the earliest examples of characters where a character is aware that they're a character or they're becoming more increasingly aware that they are a cog in a story. Mm-hmm. And so it's not even about, it's not about storytelling itself. It's about, okay, look at this, this uh, is microcosm the word I want to use? Like, look at this, I don't know, like uh, this, this microscopic element of this giant, painting that we're showing you yeah what if we were to tell you that this fleck of paint was alive and was a and was becoming more keenly aware that it was a fleck of paint in a painting being shown to people in a gallery what would you say to that and that's sort of what Rosencrantz I would say good (laughs) that sounds interesting to watch my cat really liked what you just said because he oh and then he just shoved his way out of the door on the way out never mind well well, I stopped talking he hated what you just said (laughs) no you started talking and he that's true. he actually hates it when i sing <laughs> well Allie, as do many <laughs> i say call me a cat because so do i no he's not the first and he won't be the last but it is so funny that my cat is like not into this when, whenever i sing around the house audra mcdonald's kids don't like it when she sings and i'm like listen everyone's a critic not everyone can have taste even if you're audra mcdonald's kids it's true you can you can birth children audra but you can't make them have taste that said so like with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, Guildenstern is the one who becomes more increasingly aware that he's a character in a play, right? Right. Which for anyone who doesn't know Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, it's not the first Tom Stoppard play, but it's the first Tom Stoppard play that made England and America aware that Tom Stoppard was Tom Stoppard. And was what- That's very fair. Yeah. And was what William Goldman wrote in the season as like a, uh, what is he said? Oh, a snob hit. He's like, this was a play that became really popular in America because- the cultural elite of New York were told that either you get this play or you're dumb. Either you uh-huh. understand this play or you're just simply not educated. And like, well, I will see this play and I will rave to my friends about this play. And it's 90%- so funny when I, I just reread it because yeah. in preparation for this, and it obviously is very smart, Yeah, but it is not obscenely smart. It is like, it's so funny. Like it does not feel like the cultural litmus test of whether or not you're an intelligent person. Well, and but that's I can, I can see how that could be the perception, but it's just funny. Cause like, and now, now that I've seen other Tom Stoppard things, I'm yeah. like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. We know those characters. Everybody's well, read Hamlet. You know first I mean? of all, like, you have to remember this was 1967. Okay. And so it was the beginning of the stopper. It's like we hadn't, they, nobody got jumpers yet. We did not get Arcadia and Coast of Utopia. Like he, little did we know he was just getting started. He was just getting life. started. He's like, oh, you he thought was like, this was dense, honey? Oh, you thought that was two and a half hours long, almost three. What about nine? What about How'd you nine, feel about bitch? that? <laughs> yeah. How about I give you a whole saga about Russian history that's going to make absolutely no sense to 85% of you? <laughs> I certainly didn't make sense to me. Nope. But the, those Jack O'Brien visuals were quite lovely. Had a great time. Didn't also, understand it. Also a turntable. But you, know, you read Rosencrantz and Guildenstern now, especially like you don't even need to have a dense knowledge of Hamlet. You just kind of need to know the basic premise of Hamlet, especially like the whole purpose of the play Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead or like here are two characters from the play that are super superfluous. Like they 
yes they're they always are kind of referred to in the characters of hamlet of like add absolutely nothing you could remove them from the play and nothing changes all the major plot points happen without them they're kind of there to just sort of prolong the inevitable um they're they're two of hamlet's childhood friends who are recruited by gertrude and uh what's his face stepdad claudius claudius i wanted to say coriolanus and i knew that was wrong uh they, I wanted to say Scar, and I knew that was wrong. <laughs> this is why we're friends. Not because you have anything Yeah, this is offer. good. This is going to be a great episode about the National Theater. I don't know anything, but this will be fun. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So, um, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, what I, they're dead. Yeah, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. So, like, unlike Timon and Pumbaa, who are, like, uh, good people, unequivocally, we, like, like yeah. them. Yeah. The, like, scholarly... Um, uh, debate about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and Hamlet are, are they just two hapless guys who got r- wrangled into something way beyond what they were supposed to and didn't know that they were being manipulated quite so much and then like, oh my God, but the tragedy is they die at the end. Yeah. Uh, or are they like social climber manipulators who are happy to get in good with the king and are willing to throw their friend under the bus because it'll get them on the good side of, you know, somebody in power. Because uh, essentially he's been asked to come by Claudius to hang out with Hamlet because Hamlet's being a real bummer. Mm. And uh, the like, they come under the pretenses that they're there to cheer him up. Mm-hmm. But Hamlet's like, oh, I can see right through them. They were told to come here because they want me to open up to them and give them information, which they will then immediately turn around and tell my uncle about. And they're using it to like trap yeah um but there's no like concrete proof in the script one way or another if they're like social climber manipulators or if they're just like his good friends who showed up and like didn't know any better necessarily and that's like a thing you can choose to play up or not if you are the director of hamlet there's also when i say that rosencrantz and guildenstern are kind of dead weight in hamlet i mean that in two ways i already said like when you if you were to cut them out of the play Nothing changes about the plot. There's nothing about anything they do that changes Hamlet's point of view or like makes him decide to do something that will like forever course correct the play. In fact, like their death is almost kind of so is flippant because Claudius writes them a letter is like, you need to kill Hamlet on the boat. Or it is like, um, give this to like the pirates, I guess, wherever to like make sure that they kill Hamlet. And then Hamlet sees the letter, changes them in the middle of the night to be like, kill Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Right. And, and basically they, they don't know that when I, they get off the boat in Denmark or whatever it is, that the letter is basically condemning them to death by yeah. the king or whatever. Yes. It is. And so they, and so they, they die um, randomly and off stage. And that's part of like one of the final lines of the play is being told Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And the other thing about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, they are also sort of the epitome of like the quirky best friends, but they're not even quirky. Like they're just there. And the way that in rom-coms, the best friends, like their whole existence is tied to the protagonist. And maybe you'll hear a little bit about their like inner lives, but they're always just kind of there for the protagonist. And that's the same thing with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And part of that is because they've been tasked by Claudius to like basically spy on Hamlet. But that also just means that anytime they're on stage, they just they're there in service to the plot and yeah. to the other characters. Not they any- have no distinct personalities from each other. They kind of do what the other one does, and so like that even becomes a joke in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern that they like forget who's who, and sometimes mm-hmm. will like call them by their own name, and they'll be like, "Wait a minute, but you're Guildenstern." It's like, "Oh right, yeah, yeah, you're right." And so it's it's very, I guess you're right. It is sort of like the meta thinking man's like well, so you're like, either smart or you're not smart. Kind of, except that like you. So you do have to know a little bit of Hamlet to 
get it only because like the way that it's framed is it's basically the entire plot of Hamlet up until like the final act, but from often the wings of life because it's because they're not even like backstage of a theater. They're just like in some random open space, which is sort of um, for anyone who ever has watched WandaVision when vision like goes to the outskirts of town beyond like Wanda's control, he just sort of sees people in the town like frozen and not doing anything because they're not in service to whatever story Wanda is enacting in her mind and her powers like immediately around her. And that's sort of like that area that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are kind of just existing in until all the other characters from Hamlet come on stage and, you know, interact with them in the plot of Hamlet. And that is when Stoppard like uses actual dialogue from Shakespeare. And then when they go off, like they go back to Stoppard language. And it's actually one of my favorite. Right. And it's also fun because it's like, oh, sorry, go ahead. The first time it happens, because like when they're so the play opens with them in this, you know, land of nothingness and Rosencrantz is flipping coins and always calling heads and it always is head. So he gets to keep it. And Guildenstern at this point, it's like. 85 coin tosses and it's always heads and it's very pleasant Phil and like it can't keep on being like this like this is so outside the realm of possibility or probability like something's going on and it's the beginning of Guildenstern like questioning the reality that he's in like is this real am I real is like is this all controlled are we just a part of something and like don't even really exist and they keep on kind of questioning that and even like what's your he's like Rosencrantz what's your first memory and yeah. Rosencrantz is like, I, I don't know. We, we were doing this. He's like, no, like he's like, oh, we were summoned. He's like, yep. He's like, who were we before we were summoned? Do you have any memory before that? Like, who were we? Like, we he just doesn't know. Um, it has very like Rick and Morty vibes to it too. Of like, who was I before this? And Tom Stoppard started it all. He really did. And well, six characters in search of an author weirdly like yeah, started that. Yeah, but like and, Tom like, Stoppard's like but, and all that other stuff. Yeah, but Tom Stoppard's like, yeah, but what if it was funny? Um, and what if like and audiences, it is funny. And what if audiences really didn't get it? But uh, <laughs> and what if it was really hard? But it's but like there are lots of it that are very understandable. Like that's uh, why course. I was saying like it doesn't strike me as being too overtly like you have to be smart or fuck you because yeah. like that beginning scene has all that funny stuff of just being like. Well, I, I got like, like, it must be terrible to be like, to be dead. Cause then you're just like a dead person in a box. Yeah. And it's like, would you rather be alive in a box or dead in a box? It's like, I guess alive. Cause then you're not dead. At least there's a chance of being like alive in the box. Yeah. I don't know. It's like, it's like, it's, it's silly. It's like, there are parts of it that are silly. And also like, there are parts of it that take serious things in Hamlet and show you that when you leave stage, it's silly now Yeah. because it's like in Hamlet when like, he kills Polonius behind the curtain, you're like, mm-hmm. oh my God. But then immediately it goes into this part of the scene and he's just like lugging around a dead body being like, gotta get rid of this. And it's, yeah. it's like funny again. And it goes from like this like big dramatic thing that like changes the course of the play of Hamlet to just being like a man being like, fuck, I have a body now. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, and can it, you help me get rid of this thing? And what makes it again funny is once again, because I'm going to just call them RNG because I am i don't have enough breath or saliva to keep on <laughs> saying Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. What makes it funny is because once again, RNG are not really a part of anything they're not there for a lot of the big moments they are receptive to all the information that like the audience has been watching unfold that like when they're off stage all this time so first of all the first time that characters from hamlet come on stage to like interact with them and do shakespeare language like up until this moment it's always been stopford language and it's mostly rng just like talking the the band of players that do the play for hamlet that like reenacts his father's death come on at one point like we're players and you know it's like we, we always need an audience and we see Hamlet come on stage and like 
mime something out and then goes back off stage. And then uh, Claudius and Gertrude come on and speak to RNG and the light changes and everything changes. And also I'm like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, RNG, they start speaking the Shakespeare language. It's like almost like they are overcome. And then everyone goes off stage, leaves RNG on stage and Rosencrantz goes, I want to go home. I don't it's like what just happened I don't like that it's almost like like a switch went off as as they're as if they're robots and it's like okay here you go showtime and then every time characters come on stage to do that that keeps happening so when Claudius and Gertrude come on to be like hey guys so um quick heads up uh Hamlet killed Ophelia's dad and we're trying to figure out what's going on you might have to take him away for a while and like they go stage and RNG are like, oh my God, what, what did we miss? It's crazy. And they, and you watch like Hamlet and Ophelia run on stage towards the end of the get thee to a nunnery scene and go back off stage and RNG are like, what? Like, what? What's happening? Like they, they're as confused as the audience is in a lot of ways, because as far as they're concerned, they're just sort of like being. And then this plot that they have absolutely nothing to do with that they're just pawns in is happening sort of without them. And then they're only uh, included when it's necessary to the grand scheme of the plot, but they have no knowledge of anything that's going on. So like they just, they're both so confused and so out of their element and have no control. And that could also be a metaphor for life, but also it's literally because they are characters in a story and Guildenstern is becoming more and more aware that he's not a human being with a life. He is a side character in a larger story that he has nothing to do with. And that's why, like, what I said at the top of just being, like, you can decide as a director if they are manipulators or Mm -hmm. if they are innocent bystanders, because then the part of them having the letter, of them hand-delivering a letter that will will ensure their death, Mm -hmm. it's either dramatic irony because they deserved it. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, you're like, oh, cool. Like, (laughs) they don't know that I know they're about to die. Or it's another example of innocent people being caught up in this giant story that they didn't deserve to die. Do you know what I'm saying? Because it's like, that's certainly how we're supposed to feel about Ophelia, who is like the picture of innocence in this story. Like, she doesn't deserve to die. He drives her to madness, but it's not fair. We're supposed to have total sympathy for her. She is like the virginal we love her. No, you know what I mean? Like that's, that's, a sen- that's the classic interpretation of Ophelia is that she's like a tragic figure who didn't deserve it. And it's like our Rosencrantz and Guildenstern also people who got caught up in a story that they didn't, didn't like ask to be part of, or is it like, you know, like, haha, we got them really tricked those assholes. Yeah. And so it's like, I like that this show commits to them just being like unwitting participants in this like giant huge family drama it's like it's like you know it'd be like if a pizza guy showed up in august osage county and then suddenly i had to like sit at the dinner table 100 he was like i don't know what's happening please don't involve me in this there's a, there's a running joke they always have any because every time they also can never leave the stage is the other thing like they're constantly talking about like how they're going to go off and like when they're asked to like go find hamlet they're like okay like let's go do it and it's a it's very waiting for gado where it's like okay, like, we're, like, we're going to leave the stage now. We're going to do it. We're absolutely going to do it. And for one reason or another, they never do. And again, that's because, like, once they leave the stage, whether they realize it or not, like, they kind of cease to exist. So it's like, they have to stay on stage if they're going to stay alive. And so Stopper keeps on giving them reasons to stay on stage. Um, It's that, there's that movie by, um, it's a Spanish filmmaker, Benuel or whatever. It's the, like, it's all these people in a dining room and they, like, 
can never actually leave the room. They keep trying and they can't. Like some reason happens oh, that they keep yeah. on saying there's something I know what like you're talking about, but not yeah. enough to know the name of it. Sorry. Yeah, it was they were Sondheim was going to turn it into the first act of a two act musical he was doing a, with, with this guy's movies. But right. Anywho, um, there's also didn't. A, yeah, there's also a running joke in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern for anyone who knows Hamlet, because Hamlet is famous for all these long soliloquies that he gives, which is the difference between a soliloquy and a monologue is a monologue is usually given to a person. Soliloquy is sung, is spoken by yourself. And whenever they're spying on Hamlet from on stage and Hamlet's off stage, Rosencrantz is like looking at him and he's like, oh, he's talking. And Guildenstern's like, he's not talking to himself, is he? And Rosencrantz says, well, he's not talking by himself. It's um, <laughs> a good line. Yeah, basically, it's basically Rosencrantz being like, he, he's, he's soliloquying right now. Yeah, like, it's, a, it's a soliloquy. Yeah. Buckle up. That having been said, what it, we'll, we'll only talk about this play for a little bit longer. The thing about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, RNG are dead. It's important for a couple of reasons for the subject we're talking, which is the national, is that it's the first play from the national to transfer to Broadway. It is the first Tom Stoppard play to come to Broadway. And it begins. I don't I don't think it single handedly begins, but it is a uh, pinpoint for us here of this sort of unfair uh mentality from American audiences like oh it's a British play so it's going to be very hard to understand and it's all up its own ass and it's meta and it's got layers upon layers and it's a snob hit like it's you know interesting you you go to prove that you're culturally aware which I don't think is fair to the play nor do I think it's fair to British theater because first of all as we already said I do think that this play while it is meta and has some complexity to it I don't think it's that terribly difficult to understand and I think if it's done well with you know good charismatic actors who can understand the piece and treat these characters like people. Uh, it can be really engaging. You know who I actually really want to see do this? Who? I'd like to see a production of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead with Danny Pudi and Donald Glover. That would be so good. That would be that amazing. Would be so good. That would be so good. They are such good actors. That'd be so good. Try and Abed do and Stoppard. Really, I beg to differ with you. How do you mean? You're the top. Yeah. So like the 60s also is an interesting decade where we kind of were going through a very big like British craze. We have, you know, Marat Saad, we have Man for All Seasons, we have The Homecoming, and then we have our movie versions of A Man for All Seasons, we have the movie version of Oliver and Tom Jones. So yeah. we were, the Beatles, the, which is the namesake for this podcast, The yes, British Invasion. The British Invasion. So one could argue would Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead be such a hit at this time? That uh, would be such a hit if it wasn't in the 60s. And the answer is, I don't know, probably not. I think yeah. it came at the exact right moment. And also, like, if we had other plays like this that were sort of meta commentaries on famous plays, it would maybe seem less interesting, less... Well, then uh, people love to feel smart. Like, that has transcended decade. Like, Wait, like- who likes to feel smart? Certainly not me. I have, I have decided I am an idiot and I I'm living proudly in my truth, but just like, you know, it's like emperor's new clothes. The minute that somebody's like, well, you only understand this if you're smart, everybody needs to go prove that they're smart. So it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, it's a very smart marketing tool essentially to be like, well, in Britain where the smart people are, they liked this and to be like, well, we're not dumb. We liked it too. We read in England. So, you know, I mean, like Shakespeare where he was born here. Have you heard of him? And so, of course, it makes sense to me that American audiences would be like, yeah, 
I have. I'm smart also, actually. How dare you? How dare you? It's very real housewives of insert blank. We all have our wine glasses and we're like, how dare you? I'm just as smart as you are. You come into my house and you tell me you that tell me I, I haven't read Shakespeare. You I've read Shakespeare. <laughs> I've read Shakespeare. I've read Shakespeare. You come to my Broadway. You go into my Alvin Theater, now currently the Neil Simon Theater, and you dare to tell me. What are you, the character with the me? most lines besides Lear and King Lear? Because you're a fool. <laughs> you're Is a fool. <laughs> you're building sandcastles in the sand. Me? I'm selling those sandcastles and flipping them on the real estate market. Mm. See, mine was like a tagline from the Real Housewives of Shakespeare's work or whatever. I don't actually know anything about the Real Housewives. I just That's insane. Sorry. No, it's not (laughs) insane. I don't promote (sighs) making people famous for just being alive. They need to have actually done something. And a lot of the people on Real Housewives of New York have done something. Okay. They married Harry Hamlin, apparently. That's Beverly Hills. And I can't talk right now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> didn't one of them say she had a business but she was just scamming people that's most of them <laughs> i don't know how to tell you that that's most <laughs> that's you've named almost all of them at this point you know who also scammed people the national theater they scammed yeah, the money out of people american people they took american audiences and like oh i guess it's very uh emperor's you said emperor's new clothes or uh i don't know what's I, there's some emperor's other new groove you know yeah that other fable where it's like you know <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you have to be kind of on the intelligence side to get this one. We're like, we, we have the, intel- I have the intelligence to take my money. Yeah, exactly. That but said, it is funny that you were saying that it like it has like poisoned the well in terms of like we now have to assume everything that comes from London is like an intellectual hit when it's like it probably does a disservice to stuff like Amadeus, which yeah. seems like it should be a thinking man's show, yeah. but really isn't. It's no. a very straightforward story and it's very funny and it's kind of like base in its humor do you know what i mean like 100 amadeus takes and, and we've talked about this already but takes what sounds as you said like a very high concept you know hoity-toity plot and peter schaefer's like no I, it's really pretty straightforward yeah, yeah. it's oh there's pe- people are jealous and in, in vienna everybody be fucking so you know that's everyone will like that and it's, the same it's thing turkish i mean I, it's it's my hairdresser says everything this year is going to be turkish the one bad thing about the play is that that line is not in the play i know we miss her we miss- <laughs> katarina katarina <laughs> uh looks don't concern a lady of taste maestro only talent that said equus which is also peter schaefer equus like also it's when you read it again it seems like this really high concept and like super dense play but when it's done well on stage like there's a lot of theatricality behind it and a lot of energy all this stuff with um young boy alan with the horses and and that sexuality and that confusion and sort of the religious element of, of it all it's actually pretty simplistic in terms of its psychological terms now and peter schaefer's even said like yeah you know psychoanalysis has come a long way since i yeah. wrote that play He's yeah like, when so you, you read it it's sort of just like so your mom and dad fucked you up huh yeah. <laughs> like that's oh, kind of oh, how so it your goes mom, your mom instilled jesus love into you and then you saw a horse thought it looked cool and you forever linked the two and and then your dad fucked you up in terms of sexuality and so now you'll never be able to sleep with a girl and now you yeah. and you took it out on horses cool the end <laughs> the end it all makes sense now which is sort of the 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 trap with the sort of psychological why plays of like well because and peter it, this was a play where peter schaefer's like it wasn't enough for me to just be like well he's crazy it's like but crazy people have their own logic or i should say people who have um have an imbalance people who have uh disorders like there's there's a there's a logic in 
their mania when they're having a manic episode. So the synapses are firing in a certain way. And if you can like track what's connected, you can kind of like get back to the root of it sometimes. Exactly. You can, or you can try to find something. And I talk about this later on with the me and my girl episode. (laughs) Everyone will be surprised. Like how's this come up? Yeah. So I'm really interested to hear what's going to come out of your mouth. So like villain origin stories now have progressed in a way that I actually think is to their detriment. Oh, for sure. So like when we talk about villain origin stories, you don't need to actually say that makes sense. Like I would do the same thing if I were in X's shoes. It's like, no, no, no. You just have to see what led this character to this moment. And I think too many origin stories now are like, well, we want the majority of people to get it and like really be like, yeah, I'd probably do the same. It's like, no, you just kind of have to sort of see to this character was what was a logical path. And so in Equus, it was the logical path for Alan to go from X to Y to Z in his manic state. And you can understand it and even have sympathy while not necessarily being like, what a girl boss. I am Alan also. Yeah. I'm going to go out there and blind some horses myself. Yeah. The play is really good about not making an audience go, I think I would do the same, but rather be like, I see, I can see why this character, knowing what I know about him now would go through this trajectory. And again, as we said, it is a little simplistic in terms of psychoanalysis, but you accept that for the effectiveness of the theatricality of the piece, which is a theme we are coming to with this series with a lot of British stuff, which is why I say, with things like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And I even argue something like Matilda, which I do love, has poisoned the well for a lot of people with British theater where they're like, well, it's, you know, it's just so very dense. And I'm like, a lot of it at its root is actually very simple and emotional. Like a lot of these shows you can analyze with a fine tooth comb and they fall apart, but the overall impact they give when you take the whole thing in is at a level that a lot of American theater hasn't always been able to get to. Uh, I talk about this a lot with Lame is even cats like on its own basic childlike level, like there's mm-hmm. an effectiveness about it that, oh my God, yes, you can pick it apart. And Lord knows, you know, Amanda and I do in that episode, but we also are like, listen, there's a reason why it ran so long, why so many people love it. It's like, let's look at the thing about it that can really affect people. And it's just the, the simple fact that it's willing to take you in to the imaginary contract of theater in a way yes. that a lot of plays and musicals have a more difficult time to do because they're trying to challenge you or they're trying to reach something greater. And there's something to applaud about that, but you also, it's also a lot easier to fail at that. It's because it's like also because British theater loves theme, but mm. at its core, like almost all plays are about theme more than anything. There are definitely some plot based plays that it's like truly about the plot. But even in shows where like there are big plot surprises, like The Pillow Man, I don't think you'd ever be like, yo, The Pillow Man, plot up the wazoo, my guy. Mm. It's all about the plot. It's really all about like theme. And like, that's something that plays have and musicals have that like other pieces of fiction are not necessarily primarily about theme, maybe like short stories or even like a short story collection. But Mm. like, you never go see a movie and you were like, that was a theme movie. It's either a character study or a realistic portrait of a time in in the world, mm-hmm. or it's about plot. You know, it's like you're like it's like a Slumdog Millionaire, and you're like, whoa, what a crazy plot. You know what I mean? Like that was so cool, that was so fulfilling. I loved seeing how one part of his life fulfilled the other part of his life. But you're, there's not like a theme of no. that movie. But like plays are all about like 
what, what are we going to talk about after? What was it about? Why did the, you know, I mean, that's why plays can take place in one location with four characters for 90 minutes. And you can still find them, like, you can still find so much to talk about, even if, like, nothing really happens. Like, you can go see Realistic Joneses, where, like, I cannot tell you the plot of Realistic Joneses, but I can tell you what I would like, like to talk about, what it made me feel. Sure. And so, like, these, all of these plays are, like, theme plays. Like, they have so much theme. <laughs> I kept saying the word too many times now, and now it just doesn't sound like word. Yeah, but that that's thing that's the thing. But the theme is that <laughs> it's gonna kill me. Is that again? Like they are dealing with these lofty ideals, but they're not. I would argue all all these plays, um, including Warhorse. Like it's again, it's about the presentation. It's about how it all sort of coalesces to give this impression for you on the stage that it doesn't always feel like you're being hit over the head, or I should say the ones that are the most effective. There are, there are, I don't want to create this narrative now where it's like, actually everything that's ever come over from England is very emotionally uh, intelligent and effective and yeah. it's not that intelligent. I'm like, no, because we do have the ones like, well, this is, while well, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern is definitely not one of the more accessible stoppers. Like, I'm sorry, can anyone uh, dissect travesties in a way that like makes sense to everyone? Correct. And- you know, even musical works. Like while I do love so much of the stripped down stuff, like the number of people, and I know you and I both loved the Sweeney Todd with the with the instruments, the number of people who had never seen Sweeney Todd before and walked out being like, what was that about? Yeah, fully. Like, and that is a musical that is like very plot driven Sondheim. Like that is one of the more plotty storytelling Sondheims. Yes, so- and that's one of the few things where I can say like the enjoyment of the show genuinely comes from, what happens to the characters, not how they deal with situations, not how they talk to each other, not how they have emotional revelations, like follies. Do you know what I'm Mm -hmm. saying? Like with the plot of follies does not matter. It is about like how these characters emotions are going to unravel in front of us and how they will like deal with it. Whereas like Sweeney Todd is one of the only things where it's just like, it's about somebody getting their comeuppance, so to speak, or like dramatic irony or like, you know, legitimate surprises. Yeah. Um, I think for me, the British theater that we get sometimes when it's at its least approachable and, and more dense is when it feels kind of studied when it's trying to like hit you in the emotions. I feel like so much British theater is really good at doing that. You have mm-hmm. your Les Mises, you have your um, Equuses or your uh, Avidas even, which like Avida is not a good musical, but when you have a director who knows how to make it make sense to you as a story and you have performers who can act and sing the shit out of it, like two hours go by and you're like, I blacked out. Yeah. Which is a great feeling. Like, yeah, like I, yeah, it's, it's silly to try and undersell things that like are that way. Because like, for example, when I was on your podcast to talk about Quorum Boy, of which I am probably the premier fan in the universe, I still had a hard time explaining the plot because the plot is hella complicated. Yeah. But it doesn't really matter because it's not like, I don't really care. It's about how it makes me feel in the end. Yeah. All these little storylines wrap up and they're so satisfying and yes, it was a little bit complicated getting there, but who cares? It was beautifully done and beautifully staged. And it was grand and huge in a way that a movie doesn't feel sometimes because all movies are huge. So who cares? But once you've seen a Marvel movie, you've seen a Marvel movie. And then it's like, how are you going to blow my mind now? But then like yeah. you go see Corn Boy at like, the National or on Broadway and this like giant scrim falls down and suddenly you're underwater. You're like, oh, I really am. Do you know yeah. what I mean? The and then you leave of, and you cry and it's great. The reveal of grown up Joey and Warhorse, which yes. I don't think I, I don't think I totally uh, finished my explanation of like the 
origin of that production. But as I said, like was supposed to be a children's Christmas show for the national. And they had spent like a year or two developing it with, um, it's called the thing, the handspring puppet company, yes. yep, yeah, yep. South African based company that like helped design Joey and all the horses and honestly all the animals for the show. And it was never designed to be like this big epic, like everyone's going to come see this kind of hit. They just were like, okay, this is like our fourth children's book that we're now adapting into a giant play. We've done Wind in the Willows. We've done His Dark Materials. We've done Corn Boy. We're going to do War Horse now. And from what they had learned from previous stuff, it, was, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't about how can we hide the fact that the script is bad? They're like, it's a simple story, but we yeah. want people to get taken in. So it's about how we can make this all work together. And that is sort of the beauty of these workshops at the national where it's never about like, how do we get people in? It's like, how do we best tell this story? And so with Corum Boy, like that epicness was a part of it. It was never about like, come see the spectacle. It was like, this makes sense for this story about, about, about how we're trying to tell it, how we're trying to engage the audience. So with War Horse, it's the same where it's like, I don't know. It's a, it's about a boy who got a horse and then the horse goes to war. And then he's like, I'm going to find the horse one day. Yeah. It's, it's Equus. It's, like, mu- it's Equus minus like, all to come. Like, you're like, okay, I guess. But then he jumps on the back of the horse's pu- the puppet horse the first time. And you're like, holy yeah. shit. And he trains him. And then he's like, it's like, and then time goes by and he grows up and like, the, and the full Joey goes off. And then like the scrim or the back parts to reveal grown up Joey. And it's just like, epic moment that all basically is happening is and you know a few months got went by and he got bigger right but it's but but it's like looks real yes and he can he he interacts with it the way that a real person would interact with a horse which to as an audience member you're like okay well it isn't a horse it's a puppet and then the minute he gets on his back you're like and it's a horse it's that's all it takes the minute that you're like you're in your head you're like well it's not really a horse because you can ride horses and he's like oh yeah i'll ride this puppet and you're like it's a horse it's a horse now and to put and to put point to another example with this show, this was this was on a turntable warhorse, and there's a moment in the plot, like when I again, plot we use loosely. The, <laughs> basically, it's you know farmers in Devon who buy a horse, and uh, there's like some discourse about said horse, and it's right before World War One's about to break out. So like the first part of Act One is just like simply. I want the horse. No, I want the horse. I yeah. got the horse. He he got the horse, but I should get the horse back at one point. It's like, all right, here we go. Here's a bet. Anyway, war. <laughs> anyway, war. But like right before the war happens, it's like, well, I'll bet you this amount of money that if you can't get the horse to plow across your field, I'll get the horse back. And if he does, you get my money. And the young boy's like, but father. Sorry, sorry, I need to do my Monty Python thing. But father, I don't want to marry her father. But father. It's You're getting further horse. and further from the Devonshire accent, but I, I, I really I support you. Care. <laughs> that that puppet horse is getting further and further from a horse. <laughs> I want, I want, uh, I want the horse for myself for that. And he's like, "Well, son, you got to let the horse plow across the field." Now I'm going into. We're so many places. I'm so I'm all over the place. I actually did have to do a Devon accent in a play, Our Country's Good, which is a play I hate. Yep. Let the record reflect. I fucking, fucking hate play. our country. Our country's good. I hate it. But play. like my character named Abby was from Devon. And so I watched a lot of clips from Warhorse to help with that. But so. And a lot of girls on YouTube being like, these are my makeup collection. And I was like, yes. Tell me yes, about your makeup collection yes, and your Devin accent. I love it. Devin. <laughs> but the whole, there's like a whole sequence where he's training the horse. And finally it's like, and then came the day. Because they're also like 
there's no official narrator, but there is like a woman who sings songs and like yeah, every there's time a lot she of sings, singing. Yeah, it's very cabaret where it's like this song is not technically about the plot, but it's to give you the impression of the emotion of what's happening right now. And so they like the whole chorus starts to sing as it's like, okay, can Joey plow the field? And the turntable turns as he's like going across the turntable. And it's all it is is like, okay, so after a couple of months, can your horse plow? And it's this really wonderful moment where the audience is like, can he do it? Can he do it? But it's like, there's no real stakes. And on top yeah, of that, it's just like, like horse plowing a field, but we care. Yeah. And then and like, we're ties- really seeing it. They're not talking about a horse off stage. We're like looking at a horse. And so like, like that's what's cool about it. It's like, it's like a cedar. You're like, damn, there's a horse Especially on stage. Especially because like we're told he's not a farming horse. He's supposed to be like another kind of, he's, a he's supposed to be horse. a war horse. He's a war horse. I was like, what actually is really good storytelling is when he does go into war and he makes it through the trenches. It's because he's been trained, unlike the other horses, to uh, to get to plow. No, it's good writing. Hashtag war horse. Hashtag all star six. (laughs) Tweet reactions. (laughs) Go fuck yourself. War horse though does uh, begin that debate in in Broadway anyway. That I don't think was ever really a debate on in London was like. When we were giving out the Tony for best play, are we giving it to the production or are we giving it to the writing? Because, Very good point. But it's hard to separate the two. It because is. Because when you leave War Horse, you're not like, well, I didn't listen to the writing this evening. Of course you did. Yeah. Or you can't be like, well, the script was bad and I had no fun at all. It's like, well, of course you didn't. You did have fun. You watched this unbelievable thing. You can also be like, the script's not very good, which it isn't. It's all about the puppets, but you're also like, you can't, it's like, there comes a point where you can't separate the two. You saw so a production, you saw the whole thing. And also when we say the script isn't good, what are we saying? That it wasn't incredible. It wasn't terrible. It wasn't offensive. Well, like I'd argue that the script to War Horse is good only because it does exactly what it's supposed to. Yeah, totally. Um, I, I think, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, people have argued that it is uh, superficial and or at base level, that it's just like, it's concerned with telling a huge story. So we don't have a lot of time to get into emotion or language or anything particularly surprising that isn't just straight up like a character saying what needs to happen next. And then that thing happening, I guess is not necessarily a criticism because that if you're going to have a show that takes place over 40 years or whatever it is, like, I don't know how much you're, we don't have time to have like a, 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 a Tom Stoppard conversation about whether or not we're alive or dead in the box. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's for me, it's as if to say you watch Lori's dream ballet and be like, I don't know, the lyrics weren't that good. I'm like, that's yeah. not what Who that cares? part of, yeah, that's not what it's there for. It's Warhorse was always designed to be an epic using puppets and staging to tell this grand story. Right. And the script is more a skeleton to tie it all together but also, well, also including music and the lighting and the and the way that the performers come together. Yeah. It's, it's everything. It's everything yeah. all together. You can't separate it. You went to go see a play, so you saw the whole thing. Yeah. You saw the lights, you saw the puppets, you saw the everything. You can't and that's, say you and didn't that's see the thing one about part the, of it. And that's the thing about The National that I really appreciate is that, again, like when they were workshopping this, they weren't like, okay, but can we maybe make the writing a little more, I don't know, avant-garde and impressive? We want people to really like find, listen to this scene and be like, yeah good scene, yeah. good writing in the scene. And also like you were saying, it was meant to appeal to families. You're supposed to take, you're supposed to take grandma, mom, dad, and the baby. And like, you're all supposed to like it. Yeah. And they did. Everyone liked it. That show was a huge hit all yep. over the world. We loved it. New York is- loved it. We all loved it. It is insane that we loved War Horse and didn't like Corn Boy, but that is my gripe for me. I think because with, with uh, War Horse, I mean, and I have not seen Corn Boy, so I cannot say warhorse was I, from what you've told me warhorse is a little less plotty it's a little more about the 
uh, theatrical storytelling. I think. I mean, there was so much theatricality. No, but I think Corn Boy had that, but also a lot of plot, and also Corn Boy was. It did have a lot of plot though, and also was, like inherently was dealt with a lot of inherently British stuff that yeah. not everywhere in the world could like relate to like oh yes we had a moment like this like world war one we all were like yeah no we went through that too yeah that's true and we do and like in america we do love to talk about how we like have won wars we do that's like and also in america we're always like that you remember that we did that we were we there did that, we, we did, did that war and also not just america but everywhere with social media we're like also my animal I love my pet. Yeah. Hashtag, hashtag my animal. Hashtag I mean, all-star six. You and your hashtag all-star six. Hashtag you and your stupid fucking cat won't shut up about that. <gasps> he saved my life today. He killed the bug. He's okay, my I war guess, horse. I guess we're rewriting history now. <laughs> I can't wait to. He is my war horse. The national is going to workshop that story and it's going to be a puppet cat. Oh, that'd be so cute. Uh, they're going to sing an Edith Piaf song. That's like not necessarily about the moment, but it like evokes the evokes moment. The moment. I'm not sure if we've truly done justice to the national today, but I feel like we've had a fun <laughs> time talking. I'll say that. Look, They're great. They pick great stuff. The national theater live was a huge whether or not it was controversial has proven mm. to be worth it. And then some, it was amazing pre-pandemic and it was a lifesaver during the pandemic. Thank 100%. you national for existing. Thanks. Thank you. And I like that their, uh, their rep is so diverse. They have, they do revivals of classic plays, classic musicals. They do new musicals. They do, they even will take transfers from America. They did Carolina Change and Fela from here. And I think they yeah. might have done a couple of plays that we've done over here. They are not uh, precious about it just being British works. They premiered Angels in America there. They premiered yep. Glengarry Glen Ross. In fact, I believe the National was officially the first theater to produce Glengarry Glen Ross. That's which awesome. Is, it's so awesome. Uh, and then, like, they and also. Play, have- it truly to me feels so american yeah so, so the, the fact, fact that, that they was, like took a risk on that is like great yeah and i don't like they've ha- they've always had their share of controversy with their country it's not like everything they've ever done has made all of england go like yes please go for it like uh when they started with Lawrence olivier in the early 60s they were just doing the classics they did i think their third season was their first new play and then the following season was rosencrantz and guildenstern and that became what it became equus was like their first big like international hit Mm -hmm. and then they didn't do their first musical until the 80s which was guys and dolls and then they kind of started making a trend out of that when trevor nunn became artistic director he did a lot of revivals he did oklahoma my fair lady anything goes candide south pacific and england was like um can we do plays again please and it's like the national does, does like 10 productions a year you had two musicals and eight plays yeah. like, i'm so sorry like, you were i think you can at- chill yeah chill down and then heitner does his stuff and everyone's like he's become too commercial with quorum boy and history boys and jerry springer the opera and this yeah. national theater live and i'm like it's fun it's interesting it's new stuff and they also still do classics i mean like and also like everybody loves history boys do you know what i'm saying like yeah, we're covering it later. Boys. This we're covering later this series. Good. Yeah, it's just one of those um, things where it's like I, I, I'm not gonna say it's one of my favorite plays of all time. I would not say that it like blew my mind, changed my life, but it's like who in the world doesn't like History Boys? Thanks for producing it. Thanks. Yeah. As you said, final thoughts on the National. You love it. We love National Theater. It's been a yeah. lifesaver. I I do wish that there was something equivalent of it in America. I don't yeah. know how that would work. As you were saying, it is very difficult to access things in America, like literally physically mm-hmm. access. And it's different than getting on a train from Gloucester to come to London to see something at the National Theater. Mm-hmm. I understand. It would be cool. I think that like because they have it, they are able to establish such a diverse 
definition of what British theater is. Do you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Because yeah. something like that exists where they're just like, like, you know what I'm saying? Whereas like Broadway, like it or not, you can have a pretty, we could narrow down a pretty strict definition of like Broadway. Yeah. Obviously there will always be exceptions and plays will always somewhat be an exception to the rule, but like overall it has to be commercial. It is a huge tourist center. It must appeal to a lot of people and must have some semblance of production value. And anything that falls outside of that definition is not the norm. Yeah. And I so think- it is interesting that like, because like you, like what, what is British theater? I don't know. What is British theater? Is it Warhorse? Is it like for kids or is it Tom Stoppard or is it the pillow man or is it, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. so I, I do think that, that is such a cool thing, whether or not our perception of it is that it's like the thinking man's hoity toity theater, as we've talked about, that's not true. Yeah. It would be cool if we had some semblance of a national theater that could be an incubator for so much different kind of work and we could like understand what like american theater is yeah especially because with the national if something does go well there it does not stay there forever like it because it it just can't they won't allow it it's right they have a a rest of their seasons to get through so things have like come back in revivals which i do really like that where um so like they have like follies come back recently and and warhorse came back before it eventually transferred to the west end but they're like listen if you guys really want to see this for a long period of time we will transfer this to a theater on the west end and it can stay there as long as you want but we have to continue to produce new things here yeah and- or like they even brought back quorum boy for like three christmases and they did yeah. like really small runs but they were like hey you told your friends to see this and it closed last year don't you worry about it it's going to run from november to january here yeah. we go here we go. Yeah. It's, and they're, they're, they're not precious about it. They're always like, we'll bring back some of the stuff. We have to bring in the new stuff, but like nothing takes up a permanent residency there, which is the thing with Lincoln center that I understand they have to do because while they are a non-for-profit in order to continue to create grand scale productions, they need like shows to make money sometimes so they can have that go into their new reserve. But like, when my fair lady runs for a year and a half, like nothing else can go into the Beaumont, you know, like they right. can't do anything in rep. Whereas like with Warhorse, when that opened, they're like, okay, yeah, no, a couple more months, but then like things are going to play in rep there. But also that's as long as it can go. If you really want to see it again, we'll move it to the new London. Now the Jillian Lynn theater and, you know, new things have to come to the national. And so I would like that for us, as you said, like a national theater, yeah. theater. not only is it like where we can explore what American theater does, but it's like, if something does take off here, we'll put it somewhere else and have a continue to thrive for you to see. Well, so we can continue making new works that you can like just as much as this. Right. And like, this is very much like a self-serving kind of thing to say, but I don't think it's untrue. I think if we had something like that, we'd have more comedies. Mm -hmm. Like, I think if we had something that like, if you like it, it'll play. If it doesn't, whatever, we can never talk about it again. It doesn't have to be like Broadway ready, have a success, let's go. Yeah. Like how many funny musicals have premiered in the last five years? By design funny? By design funny. funny. Not, not, share, not share show funny, but like really like was designed to be a comedy. And no offense, I love the share show. Best show, I ever, best time I ever had on seeing a show on Broadway. No joke, but not meant to be a comedy. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, have your opinions about share show, honey. I mine are not nearly as uh, celebratory as yours. Oh, it's the best. It's the best time I've ever had in a Broadway house. I can't, I can't the, overstate that enough. <laughs> the nicest thing I will say about the share show is I am thrilled. Stephanie J. Block is now a Tony Award winner. Sure. I don't know if I would like it that she won for that performance, but I'm thrilled that that show gave her a Tony. Or got I have her a, a whole. I have a whole note on my phone of quotes that I wrote down 
as I was leaving the theater with my friend that we were like, we can never forget that was set on a Broadway stage. And we just like wrote down like the whole script of the share show. I'm assuming half of them were like just real share quotes. Mom, I I am a rich man. There's a part where she talks to the dead ghost of Sonny Bono. I mean, look, best show I've ever seen in my life. Best show she's not ever designed seen in my life. to not designed to be a comedy. No, but like even then, like like because things like that are not quote unquote marketable, sellable, blah blah blah. It usually tends to be things that are like this is an important work of theater. This will be very important. We're going to remember this forever because it's important. Mm-hmm. And so it's rare that we get something that is like a critical runaway hit that is just straight up funny because like that's a hard sell. That's a really hard sell. And even something like The Prom, which was funny, was funny and important. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? It had to have a message too. Yeah. It was we not, don't have a lot of noises not, off. Yeah, it wasn't billed as being like, you're going to laugh. No, not at all. We have like Book of Mormon. We had like disaster. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But yeah. like very rarely are things just like, that'll be funny. And I genuinely think that if we hadn't like an incubator of theater, because American movies are funny. Do you know what I'm saying? Sure. Yeah. No, I know. I, I know exactly what you're saying. I also think the, the, the comedy scene of America is huge and is not reflected in our plays and our musicals. I will also say, and this is a very controversial take, and I swear we're going to wrap it up after I say it, because as soon as I say it, people are going to like switch <laughs> off and be like, cancel Mac Hoplick. Boo! I was saying this at the wedding last night. Broadway has become, oh, my internet connection is unstable. Can you still hear me? Oh, I can hear you. Oh, great. Yeah. I, I just got nervous. It said it was unstable. It's like, oh, no, are we going to close out? Um, <laughs> The internet gods knew about my Just because days. you said something controversial. Yeah. Yeah. Broadway has become weirdly an industry where everyone is concerned about job security and stability. And first of all, the life, a life in the arts, you sign up for it not thinking you're going to be working all the time. If you think that, like, get out even if you are a successful performer or writer or whatnot like there are pockets of time you're not working all the time exactly and especially with broadway and i do miss the times when you could run for a year and that be considered a successful run you can make your money and whatnot because of the financials of how broadway now is it takes longer for a lot of shows to recoup which whatever and then also like if shows are now that ticket prices are so expensive audiences want to know that what they're paying money for they have the guarantee that it's going to be successful because it's run for so long so many people have liked it before me less uh risks taken on things that are new and we now there's now a stigma against when a show is closing and people like oh i can't wait for the new thing to come in and everyone goes oh so you're thrilled for this show to close so all these people lose their jobs and it's like I am sad that these people are going to be out of work, but I look forward to the new thing that comes. It'll get a bunch of other people employed. And on top of that could be a really amazing thing that touches their lives, that touches my life, or it could just be this really cathartic thing, like a wonderful comedy to be in. Um, like I've heard, I, there was something where, uh, oh, it was uh, when Susan Stroman was working on the producers and her, Mike Ockrent had died and, and she was like, I can't work on this show. And Mel Brooks was like, listen, you're going to come in every day and you are going to laugh and you're going to have the best time. And you're going to go home and you're going to cry your eyes out. And then you're going to come back tomorrow and you're going to laugh. He's like, because if you just cry every day, you will go insane. And that's exactly what happened. It got yeah. her through it and she came out stronger and better. And I think that's true of any experience and any artistic experience. So the hot take I also had was like, well, I hate to say it, COVID and the shutdown, it's going to clear out a lot of houses. It already has cleared a few. We're going to clear out a few more houses of like long running shows that I'm like, I don't need the show around for another 20 years. I would like that theater 
to start housing some new stuff. And while I will be sad that some people will be unemployed, I look forward to this new show that will employ new people and give new stories to tell. We keep talking about how we don't have enough stories. We don't have enough representation. Like we also have half of our Broadway houses filled with shows that are never leaving. I think that that's, I think that's a very fair thing to say. It could be controversial, but it, it ultimately is a pretty fair statement. Thank you. Uh, Some people might cancel me and I'm not telling you to go out and like, you know, close out all these shows and make sure everyone's unemployed. I want, I would love a world where we're all constantly employed while also doing new things. And you know how that's possible? By having our own national theater. Yes, that's what I'm saying. There we go. And and, and for things to like run and or come back or whatever it is, because it's like if a show really does run a year and a half and that really is a healthy run of a show. Mm -hmm. Yes, you will be unemployed after that year and a half. But like maybe you're going to go into production for the next thing and you'll be in production for, you know, four months in some way or another between readings and casting and da, 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 da. And then you're in workshops and then you're in rehearsals and then it's premiered. And it's like it it, turnover is a healthy thing in general. Absolutely. Yeah, I just I just feel like. I don't feel like Broadway in plays or musicals reflect what we actually like write as a culture often. Mm -hmm. And I don't even mean like in terms of like, hey, what about plays from black authors? We have black writers in America because obviously that's true. That's a whole different conversation. But I just mean like, I don't know, look how many movies came out this year and look how many of them were like rom-coms and look how many of them were comedies straight up and look how many of them were I don't know action or what anything and it's like yes some things will be better suited to film and that's why we have movies in general yeah but it's like I don't know we clearly liked Bridesmaids we could have like we could have something like that that would be a play or a musical and people would like it like there it's just tough because like if you have to sell out a theater for four years and the, and the running costs are monumental, then it better be fucking important or something because like, how else are you going to get people to come see it without, without them going home to their friends and going, it was really dramatic and very important. Mm-hmm. And so well, it's rare for somebody to be like, it was just so much fun. I just had a great fucking time. I'll put it to you guys this way. I believe these movies came out the same year. If not the same year, they were about a year apart. How many people are quoting Michael Clayton these days? And how many people are quoting and constantly referencing the Devil Wears Prada? Yes, very true. It's it. We obvi- should make a musical of the Devil. I'm just kidding. <laughs> what if we did Michael Clayton the opera? But it's the comedies. If comedies tend to age poorly, it's just how it is because what we consider funny changes over time. Yes. That's part of progress. But when some things last that are comedic they last and and like they stick like friends has its problems with the fact that it has maintained for so long and has made and has kept its momentum all this time over a lot of shows that maybe have been more like culturally important or like broken yeah. barriers says something and so it may not seem like much in the moment but it's important to try everything try every genre every kind of story every kind of character um and not just to think of like what's gonna make the most money now but like i don't know what's something that i would like to see that i think other people would like to see what's yeah. what's something we haven't seen in a minute not even like do something different but like it's been a minute since we've seen a romantic comedy on broadway yeah i mean like that'd be fun it's not even like my genre like rom-com is not my genre so i'm not trying to be like we gotta have it but it's like i don't know i'd see it i'd be interested to see how that like translates to stage and it's like what happens is we have these amazing writers and we lose them to film and tv because that's where the money is Mm -hmm. and that's like that's not their fault i'm not mad at leslie headland for being like yeah i wrote i wrote bachelorette and it was awesome and now i show run tv shows where they Mm -hmm. give me lots of freedom and i get lots of money there's also faster you bitch really there's faster turnaround on film and tv like because you can do more you can do more more money and so it's like i can't you can't be surprised when all of our best writers Mm -hmm. start 
writing something else on TV. It's like, yeah, thank you for like, I, I'm, I, that's not a sellout. That's a person like surviving and like actually being given a platform for their work. It's like, thank you. Yeah. Phoebe Waller-Bridge wrote a one-woman show and now she has all the TV credits. Exactly. There it is. And all God right. bless her. God bless her. All right, Allie, we're going to close this out. Where, yeah, can close people, out. where can people find you if you want them to find you? If you want to find me, I am on Twitter at Miss Alice Nutting, M-S-A-L-I-C-E-N-U-T-T-I-N-G. Yes, it is Mystery Devin Drood. We talk about this every time. Every time. Um, Speaking for of once, British. I actually have something to promote because I feel like it's been like two years because of COVID and whatever, mm-hmm. but I am just now starting to go back to performing in person. Uh, my musical improv team, Rumble Teaser, which is excellent, um, is back. We are doing shows at the Asylum Theater in New York City, which was the old UCB Chelsea on 26th mm-hmm. Street. Uh, really fun theater, uh, has been great and very safe and just checking vaccination status and blah, blah, blah. Um, and we do two shows a month. So you can either like follow that Twitter, which is Rumple Teaser MI, which stands for musical improv or me or whatever. Somebody you'll feel find out. But if you live in and around New York and you like musicals and you like improv, musical improv, maybe that's all of it. Maybe, <laughs> maybe that's, that's all, all of, of it. That's all of it. If you want to follow me, I'm on Instagram at Matt Coplick, usual spelling. If you like the podcast, rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Uh, I'm so sorry about this episode. Don't worry, Allie Gordon's not popping up. She will never come back. Never come back. (laughs) Flop, gone, whatever. I'm trying to think who we should have close this out. We haven't really talked about many musicals. We don't have a lot of people connected to all this stuff. Uh, Trying to think like Bojos, Pillaman, Equus, or Rosencrantz. We should have James Corden singing No One Is Alone. He is a diva. (laughs) He is a diva. That's good. Here's what we're going to do. In the Broadway production of Equus, a young-ish Francis Sternhagen played the mom. Francis Sternhagen played Bunny on Sex and the City. I've mentioned Sex and the City many times on this podcast. Sarah Jessica Parker was on Sex and the City. She was on Broadway in many a musical, including Once Upon a Mattress, which I have the cast recording for. So we will close out with Sarah Jessica Parker. Are we just going to be singing Shy or Happily Ever After? Which one? Uh, I don't know. Dealer's choice. All right. Dealer's choice. Dealer's choice. I don't know. Bye. Figure it out. <laughs> Bye. All right. This, thank you so much for listening, everybody. Check us back next week as we get into the fever feline dream that does not star Allie Gordon's pet. Damn. Cats. Cats, cats, cats. It's about cats. Hal, it's about cats. Check us out next week. Bye. Bye. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now 
and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.